All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, it's like, I, I feel bad for people coming in, like there's these great seats right in the middle. You just have to climb over 15 people, you know, to get there, which is a drag. Also, is there still a bird flying around in here? Is there? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like Hitchcock Sunday. So, um, uh, you know, it's like, you don't even know what this little bird's going to do. It's like death bird, right? So, I mean, there's angry birds and then there's this bird. So, um, if, if the bird just kind of lands on your shoulder, just go, look, he's here. All right? That will be awesome. So, hopefully he doesn't fly around too much uh, during our message. So, 2 Timothy trap, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, this Sunday uh, is sort of unique because we are ending our warrior series. Today is our final day in 1st and 2nd Timothy, and we entitled this whole series Warrior because what we want you to understand as a believer is that you are in fact a warrior. You're a warrior. In fact, the Bible says you are more than a conqueror, right? So you're not just a warrior with an uncertain future, you are a warrior with a certain future. And it's in light of that future that you live your life in the context of wanting to contend as a good soldier, wanting to fight the good fight of faith, wanting to make sure you maintain solid, tenacious warfare. Again, not like the world handles warfare, but the way the Bible calls us to live as people in an environment that is engaged in a conflict, right? That's the spirit of the warrior. And there's a number of things that are important for a warrior to contend at the level that Christ calls them to. It's not any one thing, it's a series of things. There's a priority list in that, but there are a few things that are absolutely critical for a warrior to believe in, for a warrior to own, for a warrior to engage. One of the principles for us in our Christian life that we must take ownership of if we are to contend as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, as Paul reminds us of here in 2 Timothy, is that we need to resist. Resist. That's a part of what our warfare is. Resistance. Say that after me. Resistance. That's your job. That's your job. And there's some pretty substantial things to resist. In fact, here in 2 Timothy, starting in verse 1, this takes us back to last week. Paul says, you should know this. Timothy, in the last days, there will be very difficult times. For people will only love themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud and scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They'll be cruel and they will hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride. They will love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could actually make them godly. He says, stay away from such people. Now, what we noted last week is this list is not the list for out there. This is the warning for in here. When we're talking about what it means to resist, it's saying, resist the list. Resist the love of self, the love of money, the love of pleasure. Resist the temptation to become religious without the power of God to claim Christianity, to claim church, to say the Bible matters, but to sense no devotion, no love, no affection, no empowerment of God. He says, that is what you do not want. Because if you start to truly love yourself and truly love money and truly love pleasure and you start to find that you're absorbing this world more than you're bringing transformation to this world, then this whole list will slowly become you. 
over the course of time, you will absorb it because you're failing to resist it, because I'm failing to stand against it, right? So this is what we resist. We resist the temptation to become lovers of this world more than lovers of God. And that is a hard thing because we spend every day in this world. Moment by moment, it is constantly pressing on us. Moment by moment, it wants to conform us, right? More to its values and its heart and its goals and its agenda, its idols, Always calling, always beckoning, always hoping that we will embrace its ideology. And then from that, we just slowly calcify. See, there's a big difference in, in Paul's list between uh, the, the common struggles in this and then just giving full-blown to these things. Right? There's one fundamental word that is all the difference. Because like we shared last week, this list is going to be a temptation for all of us. Uh, I, I Honestly, I looked at that entire uh, rap sheet and I'm like, every one of these I have struggles with at different times. But, but here's the difference between sometimes struggling and giving over to these things. It's one very liberating, powerful word. It is the word repentance. It's repentance. In other words, when I see that I'm starting to love money, instead of saying, no, 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 I don't have a problem with money. No, 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 I'm not greedy. No, I'm not a lover of the gold, silver, and precious things of this world. Instead of saying, no, 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 that's not me, what I do is I say, I think that is me. Jesus, I repent. I repent. Forgive me for that. Forgive me for thinking that is more pleasurable than you are pleasurable. That that is going to pay off more than you pay off. Forgive me, I repent. I will always contend before you as a church that repentance is the sweetest, most beautiful word you will read in the Bible. Because it alleviates guilt, it alleviates suffering, it alleviates pain, it steers you away from the gods of this world into the one true God over this world. That is a big difference. And so those who see their sin and repent, there's freedom. For, for those who do not see that that is sin, they condone it, they justify it, they downplay it, they kind of erase it, they take their little exacto knife to the Bible in a very practical way and say, yeah, I know it says that, but I'm doing my thing. Well, those people, again, they just begin to harden more and more and they give over to this list more and more and the endorphins of sin rise up in their life and pretty soon this defines them doesn't just plague them, it defines them. All claiming the name of Christ, but really living in the ways of this world. Paul says, with those kinds of people, have nothing to do with them. That's some pretty strong language. To say, when it comes to a Christian who has fallen into these things and defending this list, have nothing to do with them. But that is the answer, because you know what? They are toxic. They're toxic. I've had seasons in my life where I hang out with people that claim Jesus, claim a form of religion, deny its power, take on this list, and what I find is that slowly I begin to take on the list too. Especially when I'm not confronting them in a loving way and saying, dude, you've got to repent, man. If it's just like, oh, that's kind of cool, I'll do that too. I'm going to hang out with you a lot pretty soon. Their values become my values. And so Paul is very clear. He says, you don't want to have anything to do with that. You don't want to be like that. You want to stand against. You want to resist right? Resist. And so he gives this list because he's going to go into something else that's so critical. He wants us to be sober. He wants us to be aware. He wants us to take ownership of the fact that this list is not far away from reality for us if we're not on guard, if we're not watching out. We need to resist. But here's the other thing. We don't merely resist or chiefly resist. Christianity is not simply a don't list. Christianity is a don't this, but pursue 
this. Go away from this because this will hurt you, but go toward this because it will help you. Avoid this because this is destruction, but seek that because it's life, and the that is a him and it's Jesus. We're in pursuit. Not just resistance, but pursuit. And so Paul, writing to this young pastor, encouraging him in what he is to do, says, man, you want to steer clear of all of this. And then he gets to verse 10. He says, but you, Timothy. That's a big but. All right? Anytime you see a but after a really pulverizing list, it is a big but. Saying, this is true of some. This is the danger you have. But you do it different. But, Timothy, think different. Act different. Love different. Pursue different. He says, but, Timothy, you certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. See, I love this because, again, no sooner is Paul talking about false teachers and false Christians that claim Jesus but don't live Jesus, that he sets them against his own life. And he says, but you know there's a different way. You've seen something different, right? You've seen my person. And I love this because this is a pretty gutsy thing. When you put your life up as some kind of collateral to what it is you communicate. Right? I mean, that's a risky thing. I know, even as a pastor, one of the hardest things for me sometimes when I'm just hanging out in the community or whatever else is when somebody says, hey, what do you do? Right? They're like, hey, what do you do for a living? I'm like, okay, here it comes. Because as soon as they say, I'm a pastor, any number of things happen. Right? Matter of fact, when we were in Hawaii, we were hanging out on the beach, and uh, we started talking to this couple. And we're talking just, just nothingness, really, for a while. And, and here it comes. Uh, so what do you do? I'm like, I'm a pastor. And you can see the whole disposition change. Right? They're like, oh, uh, sorry about my language earlier. Right? And oh, uh, it's a Mai Tai. Can I have a Diet Pepsi? I'm like, no, stop. Stop. We're all good here. I'm drinking a Mai Tai. All right? So, like... Don't, don't, don't freak out because suddenly you go, oh, he's a pastor. It's different. The other freaky thing is that now I'm suddenly going, oh, now they're really watching me. What do I do? What did I say? What's next? Right? To use your life as the model is a gutsy thing. But that's right where Paul goes. Paul has been so sold out, so in love with Jesus, so certain about everything, that he says, Timothy, you know, you know, first of all, what I teach, what I teach, this book, this truth, what I teach, it is above me. It is not my truth. It's not the thing I created. It's not my agenda. It's God's truth. It rules my life. It dictates my actions. It controls my emotions. It gives me a sense of direction and you know that i have taught this faithfully tenaciously personally see what i love about paul is that he knows what truth is truth is not just precepts truth is not just principles truth is truth is jesus truth is jesus when we talk about truth as christians we're not merely talking about the bible we're talking about the bible but we're talking about something more than that the bible reveals the person the person is jesus So he says, man, you know the truth that I have preached. More than that, he says, man, you know that my teaching has led to how I live. 
right? So the truth that is above me then dictates how I handle life, how I respond, how I react, how I plan, how I move. And I love that about Paul, right? It affects how he lives. See, the false or the shallow, the lukewarm, the distracted, the legalistic, the moralist, um, they're shaped by other things. Other agendas, other priorities. Paul says, now nah, the truth has really shaped my life. So much so that you know what? My life now has true purpose. True purpose. And that's his third thing, right? He says, you know what my purpose in life is. Now, can I tell you what's cool about Paul? This is why I love Paul. Paul is less like me and far more like you. Paul is less like me and far more like you. Because here's this thing we think about Paul. Oh, Paul was a preacher. Paul was a pastor. Paul was a church planter. He had all of his time invested into that. And I'd say, uh, that was all of his free time. Paul was a business owner. Paul was a guy that clocked in and clocked out every day. Paul was an entrepreneur. Paul had a small business. And that took up his whole day. And then with whatever free time he had, he was dedicated to his life's purpose. Even at work, he was dedicated to his life's purpose. But his life's purpose was not to own a small business and make tents. His purpose was Jesus. Whether he was making tents or preaching in the street or planting a church someplace, whatever, Jesus was the purpose for everything. And I would encourage you, no matter what you do, where you do it, how you do it, your purpose is not to be an accountant. Your purpose is not to be a stay-at-home mom. Your purpose is not to be a lawyer. Well, maybe. Uh, your purpose, your purpose is not to just merely swing a hammer. Your purpose is the same purpose as Paul. If you follow Jesus, Jesus is your purpose, right? He's your purpose. Any idea, Shane? <laughs> the bird. <laughs> See if I can move that around a little bit back there. Sorry, kids. We do. You just, you got to test this stuff out, you know what I mean? It's a... Uh, it's a field exam. All right, so I'll try to move around less, which is, oh man, Holy Spirit be with me. All right, so purpose, Paul's purpose, all right? So here's what I love about Paul, where he says, you know what I teach, you know how I live, you know what my purpose is in this life. These are the last words he will write. Second Timothy is like the bookend to everything Paul. All right? This is the end of his life. This is where it all is going to finish. And so he says these words to the church in Ephesus. You know what's great about that? These mirror the very first words he said to the church in Ephesus years earlier. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only that I might finish the course of the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I love that. I love Because that's his agenda. No matter what he's doing, he's got this other whole framework in there that says, you know what? It's not I, but Christ who lives in me. In this life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. He goes, man, my life is not my life. My life is Jesus' life. That's my purpose. That's my calling. That's my goal. That's my mission. 
And if somebody was to ask Paul, what's the number one thing you want in life? Is it to plant more churches, to have bigger congregations, to be noteworthy, to write the Bible? He would say, no, 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 that is not my goal. That is not my purpose. He would say, my purpose is to know him. It's just to know Jesus more and more. That's his whole testimony in Philippians 3. He goes, man, I count this whole world as nothing in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I suffer for Christ Jesus my Lord. I hunger for Christ Jesus my Lord. I need Christ Jesus my Lord. That is my supreme goal. That's what I love about Paul. And so he appeals to that. Timothy, you know what I teach. You know how I live. You know my purpose. Look at my life. There is nothing you can point at in my life and say, Jesus was second. Jesus was always first. So he says, look, he says in verse 10, you know my faith in God, you know my patience in trials, you know my love for everyone, whether they're opponents or friends, you know my endurance that I have kept all the way up to the end. You know, that's how we need to live. Honestly, that's how we really need to live. We need to be able to say to our children, or our friends, or spouse, or those who are critical of our faith, you know my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. You know what I teach. You know what I believe. You know what my purpose is. I'm looking at this going, man, I want that to be my declaration. I do. I want it to be my declaration. Is it? If I'm candid, I know that it's not. But Paul, he knows that it is. In fact, it's really cool. Uh, in verse 10, he says, uh, you know, right, Timothy. And then he says again, you know. And then in verse 11, you know. I, I love that. It's like, again, it's, it's, it, it's so true. He's like, man, you got no doubt. There's no question mark that this has been my life. So in verse 11, he says, you know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch. Iconum and Lystra. He could have the list go on too. You know how I was treated in Ephesus with the riot and Philippi when I was thrown in jail and Thessalonica when we were run out of town and Jerusalem when they wanted to tear me limb to limb. His list could go on and on and on of all the ways that he has suffered. In Antioch, the Jews didn't like what he was saying. They were envious because you know what? He preached with authority and conviction just like his master Jesus and the Jews were like, oh man, this guy's getting too much traction. So they went after him. So he moves to the next city. What happens there? The Jews and the Gentiles together go, man, this guy is bad news. And they grab rocks because they're going to stone him. So he goes down to the next road, uh, next town. And at the next town, he preaches and there's a healing. And everybody says, sweet, this guy was healed. These guys are like the gods come down from heaven. Paul says, whoa, wait, we're not gods. We're just preachers of Jesus. And who shows up? Jewish opposition. And a crowd that one minute thinks Paul is a god the next minute thinks Paul is a devil and they grab rocks and they stone him and chuck his body out of the city. And Paul gets right back up, walks right back into the city and starts to preach again. He says, yeah, you know my persecutions. You know my sufferings. And here's what's crazy about Paul. This is a good reminder for us. Uh, oftentimes, almost the majority of the time for Paul, his persecution and suffering, you know where it came from? Religious people. Religious people. Right? Most of Paul's persecution and suffering was at the hands of people who claim God, claim the Bible, claim morality, claim values. I will tell you as a pastor, I have suffered far more at the hands of those who claim Jesus than I have ever suffered at the hands of the world. The world is often very nice to me. The church is sometimes very mean. 
Christians are sometimes very mean. Right? And you're going to find in your own life that sometimes Christians are cruel. Sometimes Christians will gossip. Sometimes Christians will come against you. Especially if you start to really live godly, you will find that they become your critics. And I get when people sometimes go through that and they go, I'm done with the church. I'm done with Christianity. They hurt me, cut me down, rub me wrong, whatever. I get that. Now, you ready? Get over that. Get over that. Because the church isn't about you, it's about Jesus, right? It's about Jesus. Now, now I get if you're kind of checking out Christianity and you get rubbed wrong by a Christian, I get that. But if you're a Christian or a mature Christian and some other Christian rubs you wrong, you know what you do? You say, they're a dipstick, I love Jesus, keep moving on. Right? That's all you do. That's all you do. You don't allow yourself to get bitter, you don't allow yourself to get angry, you don't treat them uniquely different, because the Bible tells you what to do. Right? Go to them, work it out. If they don't want to work it out, kick the dust off, move on. But, but anybody says, you know, I'm not going to church anymore because of the Christians. You're just in sin. There's no excuse. If you know somebody who says, you know, I don't do it anymore because I was bit by religion. Well, yeah, religion sucks. Curse religion. Love Jesus. Love what Jesus loves. What does Jesus love? Jesus loves his church. He loves his church. Church is an incomplete place. I always go back to uh, Augustine. I loved his thing. You know, the church is a harlot, but she's still our mother. You know, like, um, and, and I thought, he's on to something. Because it's filled with incomplete people. The church isn't a building, it's the people. And the people are in process. Incomplete people, imperfect people, perfect God. So Paul was throttled a lot by religion. He kept trying to reach the very people that throttled him. That was his heart, that was his spirit. So he goes, you know how much I've been persecuted, how much I've suffered, how much I've endured. But here's what's great. It's what I can even say with Paul. He says, but the Lord rescued me from it all. Isn't that great? He says, you know how much I've been persecuted. You know how much I've suffered. You know that every place I go, they end up hating me, and yet the Lord has rescued me from it all. Now, here's the message, church. He doesn't rescue without pain. He doesn't rescue you without suffering and bruises and scars and damage and ache and hurt. There's going to be many painful things that come into your life, many things that leave a mark. And yet even those marks oftentimes are marks that are rescuing us. See, here's the crazy thing. Faith and faithfulness are rarely inspired by speeches. They're rarely inspired by speeches. They're more often infused by suffering. And so sometimes the way God is rescuing you, oftentimes from yourself, is to let you suffer. He's going to rescue you in the suffering. He's going to liberate you by, for a season, enslaving you to whatever it is. And then you have to kind of make decisions from there, right? I mean, I think about Paul after he gets stoned and they think he's dead and he rises back up and goes into the city. One of the things he preaches in that context is he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Like, no doubt, dude, you were just stoned. Not Washington State stoned, rocks stoned, all right? You were stoned, left for dead, probably dead, risen to life again. Yeah, through many tribulations, you enter the kingdom. That's, a, that's just a truth. See, some of us, our problem 
is that we're cursing our circumstances when we should actually stop and be learning from them. Right? We're so eager to get through the hardship, we're not stopping to let the hardship do the teaching. Or we're getting bitter about it. Why isn't it changing? Why do they act this way? It's not fair. Our list goes on and on and on. And God is looking saying, I have given you a tremendous gift. And you are squandering it in your own self-pride. Right? See, when we become lovers of self, when hardship comes, you know what we start to look at? Ourselves. When the hardship is an opportunity to look at him and say, Jesus, what do you want to teach me through this hardship? Because he's been there, right? I mean, I think Jesus knows hardship. I mean, he knows hardship at a massive level. He comes to his own, his own don't receive him. He gathers 12, one stabs him in the back. The other 11, they just go running like a bunch of scared kids. His chief one denies him, denies him, denies him. Then he goes to a cross, and he takes the wrath of God for the sins of man. He knows suffering. And it says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despises shame. The joy that was before him was knowing that, you know what? All suffering is redemptive. All suffering is, is truly redemptive. It's true in our lives. It's redemptive. I, I can speak to that firsthand. It, it's weird. Um, today, my wife and my oldest daughter, Honor, are headed down to Oregon. Uh, she's checking out a college down there, which freaks me out, man. Totally freaks me out. When we moved here, uh, Honor was 11 years old right? She's 17 now. She's looking at colleges. She was 11 years old. And so we were driving yesterday and we were reflecting on the last six years. And it was really interesting as we walked through it. It's like year one. You know what my year one was? I was depressed. I was depressed, right? Left this environment I knew to this environment I didn't know. Came into an environment that I didn't know what I didn't know what I didn't know about, right? I was commuting for six months of it. Uh, just, I was depressed. I, I've never been depressed in my life. I've never been depressed since. But year one, I was depressed. Year two, did it get better? No, then I just went to discouragement. And I spent the year discouraged. And then there was year three. Oh, that's a doozy. Year three, I spent defamed. I get to read these wonderful emails about me uh, sent to many people. Uh, all these things, I'm like, am I, I'm not that, I'm not that, but you know what, what do I do with this? And then here's the real killer, my own sin in me says, I want to retaliate. You know what really stinks? The Bible. Stinks. Because I'm reading this Bible that says, oh, love your enemies, do good to them, pray for them. <sighs> I'll retaliate by saying, Jesus bless them, right? So, <laughs> do good to them. Right? You're three, defamed. You're four, depleted and distracted. I have no clue how much time my wife and kids actually had of me in year four. And then year five, drained. Year five was drained. You go, well, what was year six? Well, it rolls out in January. I'll tell you after that. Um, can I tell you? That was the best six years of my life spiritually. Best six years of my life spiritually. Not emotionally. Um, shed more tears in that time than ever. Probably have shed more tears even this year than all those other years combined. Um, but as we reflected, nothing was more healing and liberating and fulfilling 
fulfilling than all that the pain produced. Because all the way through, there was one true constant I knew. I knew. I didn't always hold it as tightly as I should, but I knew that this is not in vain if I receive it for its purpose. My problem would be if I started to reject its purpose, if I started to say, but this isn't fair, and this isn't right, and I don't like it, and make the pain stop, and uncle, uncle, tap out, I'm done. And God's like, you're cute, but uh, there's no tap out here. I'm not done. But when you receive it, it produces grace, faith, strength. And so he could say legitimately, the Lord rescued me from it all. I guarantee you, when you receive the pain that comes to life and you look to God, he will use it redemptively. That's a promise to claim. In this text, there's another promise to claim. Sorry. Verse 12. Yes. And everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Isn't that great? Why don't you stitch that on a pillow as a Bible memory? You know, it's like, you know, have grandma do that for you for Christmas. Here's my life verse, um, right? Be great. Because it's a promise, right? If we're driven to it, we're centered on it, we're fixated for it, here's what happens. You suffer persecution. It's just a built-in promise, but here's the deal. You would not have any wounds if it wasn't worth fighting for, right? It'd be carefree. It would just be playing hopscotch and eating suckers and wearing slippers and calling it happy. But that's not what we're called to. In fact, I think about Paul, what he says in Philippians 1.29. He says, it's been appointed to you not only to believe on Christ Jesus, but also to suffer for his name's sake. Yes, that's what I get. But see, we should know that. I mean, if you just if you just think about the introduction, kind of Jesus 101, he's like, hey man, follow me, but you know what? The world hates me, it's gonna hate you. Right? And we should just embrace that if we want to live more and more like Jesus, we're gonna suffer more and more like Jesus did too. And so we can look at this and say, man, we got options, right? We can quit. We can just quit. I'm not gonna stand out, I'm not gonna really tough it out for Jesus, I'm just gonna quit. You won't suffer any persecution. Or you can be quiet. I just don't want to stand out. I love Jesus. It's my heart. Which is fine. You can do that. You can be quiet. Or you can own it with joy. Own it with joy. That's what Paul did. He owned it with joy. Not that it was joyful to suffer persecution, but Jesus was his joy, and because of that, he had no problem when he suffered persecution. We're going to suffer. It's just sort of in the equation. So the question is, how do you own it? How do you endure persecution? Look what Paul's words are here. You do it in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Every day you wake up and say, Jesus, this has become my new prayer. I used to pray, uh, may I be pure, may I be holy, may I be godly, may I be obedient. And I'm not saying I don't pray that. I have this whole new part of my prayer at the beginning, which is, Jesus, I pray that you are so much better than in my daily affairs, that the outflow is all those things. Because when we pray, Jesus, I pray that you are so much better than even things like persecution, opposition, or uh, just basic slander. You know what? You go, but Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. The other thing in this, not only pray every day for that, but repent to the vices and values that distract us from that. Pursue him as our ultimate appetite. 
right? That's what we have to do. And in the context of this, you ready? We have to recalibrate our expectations. It says, yes, everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you want to stand up for Jesus, your life's going to be rough. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others, and they themselves will be deceived. When you look around and go, why do the wicked prosper? Good for you, Solomon. He asked the same question. All right? And here's the answer. I don't know, except that they just sort of succeed in this world. They just sort of succeed. They multiply. They prosper. You look around and say, why do the godly get run under bus and the wicked, they seem to have all the wealth and all the fame and all the power and everything is going well for them? Well, here's a couple of reasons why. One is this. While the enemy works against you, he subsidizes them. Right? Right? So you have an enemy that actively works against you, and the more you live like Jesus, the more he works against you, while your enemies, he's subsidizing their activities. When you look around and you see religious people getting ahead in their wickedness, or you see non-religious people throttling people of faith or whatever else, that's why they get ahead. And in this life, they're going to get ahead. So stop looking and go, oh, but why, why, why? All you need to know is that one day, tables turn. Paul knew that the tables would turn one day. So he says, Timothy, you've got to understand, man, if you live for Christ, you're going to suffer, and you're going to look around and say, well, why do my enemies seem to get ahead? Don't sweat it. That's the plan. He says in verse 14, but you must remain faithful to the things that you have been taught. You know that they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. See, we live in a time and culture where we love novelty, we love fresh, we love new, spanking new, we love that. Even in Bible, even in theology, even in doctrine, we love the freshness of new. And yet Paul says, you know what, you might want to trust legacy and tradition a little bit. You might want to realize that in the 21st century, the church and our beliefs are built on a foundation of generation upon generation upon generation upon generation. And some new young guy rolls in and says something the church has never heard in 2,000 years. You might want to go, whoa, all the warning lights on my dash are blinking. Because something that's new and novel and hip and you've never heard it before, there's a reason. It's because it's wrong, typically. And that's a hip thing today, man. That is a cool thing for dudes to write books and have blogs and make little videos and everything else where they're saying stuff that nobody has ever said. Or if they've said it, they're like, oh yeah, we worked that one through. That's a heretic. And we just resurrect it all. So Paul tells Timothy, man, you've got to trust the Bible. You've got to trust the history and the legacy that we come from, right? He says that's what's going to teach you about what it means to truly live and trust in Christ Jesus. What it means, church, is that we really have to believe the Bible has the direction, guide, and answers for life. We have to believe that. And you know what? I would love to think that everybody in the church believes that, but what I find as a pastor over the course of time, that not everybody really does believe that. They'll say it. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, everybody's going to say, like, oh, yeah, the Bible, it's the word of God. There'll be people that come for counseling. I remember one time Ellen was doing some counseling with a gal, and, and again, just friction with her husband and everything else and and you know she definitely would win the verbal battles and so she's like you know my husband won't even talk to me anymore and Ellen's like well I think I know why uh maybe it's because you run him over all right um well what should I do about that she takes this person to first Timothy 3 or first Peter 3 and says well here you can win him without a word by the conduct of your character and gave this thing and the person's like well that won't work she's like you're, you're right 
<laughs> just run him over. I'm sure it'll work. Um, right? Here's the problem. We don't always like what the Bible tells us to do. We don't always like it. It's, and, and sometimes we don't like it to the point of we don't do it. Right? So we say, I believe the Bible. I'm just not willing to do the Bible. I'll do my own thing because the Bible gets in the way of what my agenda and priorities are and the way I want to expedite that. So Paul reminds Timothy, man, don't give up on the word. Don't lose sight of the word. Don't minimize the power of the word. Right? And I mean truly the word. 52 books. 1,189 chapters, 31,240 verses, 774,746 words to the dotted I and the cross T. That is God's word. Not some of the words of God are in our Bible. Right? It's the word of God. We want to trust that it's the word of God. We want to believe that it gives us the direction for life in Christ Jesus. This is then why Paul says with conviction, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is inspired by God. Every bit of scripture is inspired by God. It's not just inspiring. It's not just inspirational. It is God-breathed. God breathed. God says, you know what? I want to communicate with my people so it is the very breath of the Almighty given on page. That's the Bible. That's what we believe. Every part of it. Not just the red letters, or the red letters are more, more, aren't more important than the black letters. The New Testament isn't more important than the Old Testament. Right? Like a New Testament of Psalms and Proverbs, I'm like, you're missing a lot of Bible there. Um, like, it's all God's Bible. It's all God's Bible. And so Paul says, all of it is inspired by God. I love that. Jesus permeates every book. Jesus, in essence, is the author of the book. He used a ghostwriter, the Holy Ghost, who worked in people to write his scripture to make him the hero. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is, in, is the hero. Jesus is everywhere in that book. And so Paul says, it is breathed out by God. He says, and it is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us what to do that is right. He says, you want to start thinking God-centered. You want to stop thinking idol-centered. You want to start living God-centered and stop living sinful-centered. That's what it does. That's what it teaches. Let it do its job. Because when it does, verse 17, God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do everything good work. See, the Bible doesn't tell you everything about everything, all right? You can't look at the Bible and be like, ooh, that's how I build a rocket, right? It won't tell you everything about everything, but it will tell you everything about what's actually important. It'll give you what you need for everything that is of true eternal value. And so Paul knows this. He says, man, it is given by God. It is useful to us. It'll make us complete in him. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom, preach the word. That's the command. That's the calling. It prepares us because there is a day, one day, the last day that will change all other days. And that will be shaped by how we respond to the word of God, for the word of God is the message of Jesus, which is the word, right? So we know that to be true. That is why we as pastors preach it. It's why all of us as Christians should know it, believe it, share it, love it, invest into it, be governed by it. That's why the word matters for us. 
Not neglecting it, not doubting it. Realize that we give an account from it and for it because we knew it instead of neglecting it. See, obviously, I think if you've been at redemption for any length of time, you know that we kind of make a big deal about Jesus' book. We make a big deal about Jesus' book for this reason. Because one day we're all going to stand before Jesus, and he's not going to be like, hey, what did you do for a living? How much money did it make? What things did you invent? He's going to want to know some very foundational things, which is, I spoke, I called you to something in my grace. How did that go? I gave you what you needed to be equipped to accomplish it. How did that go? Because we're all going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. The living and the dead will all come before him, and we will be judged according to him and his word. And and so Paul says, man, you guys got to preach it, know it, live it, love it, discern it, seek it, memorize it, meditate on it, understand it. That is the key. I think about us as a church, kind of our preaching values. Right? I mean, this is what drives the, the pulpit on Sunday morning. It's, it's this passage right here. Right? We look and we go, man, uh, we, we try to really communicate God's word. Sometimes we preach through books of the Bible. Sometimes we do what's called topical, which is actually just theological, kind of caked in something that sounds topical. And we try to make much of the book. Much of the book. In fact, sometimes I feel really bad for you guys because when I stop doing a verse-for-verse study and we do a topical study, you end up getting like four times more cross-references, right? I had one person say to me one time, dude, you're using way too many verses. I'm like, did you say that out loud at church? You should not say that out loud at church. Um, dude, you're using way too many verses. But, but it's funny, I kind of look and I go, well, I just tried to throw everything at the wall, we'll see what sticks, Right? But that's a heart, because that's not always the heart in every church. Some churches, a pastor will sit down to put together a message, and here's what he does. He writes a sermon, he looks at the sermon, he says, wow, that's awesome. I need to find some verses for that now. Right? And so he's like, oh, there's got to be a psalm in here somewhere. Boom, you know, like psalms works for everything. Proverbs, it's wise. Throw a proverb in there. Call it done. Right? Where it's not much of the word, it's much of therapy, or it's much of insight, or it's much of creativity, or it's much of humor. Where we go, man, we want to make sure we make much of God's word. Much of God's word because we believe it can actually change lives. Another value that's really important in preaching, and this is, this is something that drives me every single week, every single Sunday, when I think about us preaching as a church, here's what I realize. I have no real power in my preaching to truly affect your heart, mind, and life. I have none. I'll say something, you go, wow, that was really clever, and by the time the chips hit the table at Ixtapa, you forgot. Right? Remember that thing? That thing he said about that thing? And Jesus, you know, and like, it's gone. Right? I get it. I get it. Because here's the problem. I'll go to stop at eating chips and somebody will say, so what was that point you made halfway through the message? I don't remember either. And I preach it. Um, so, um, I have no power to affect you. So here's the value we hold as a church when it comes to the preaching of God. The Holy Spirit is the teacher, not me. Not me. I really can't affect your life in that way. I, I, I'm just supposed to be the, the, the mailman. Holy Spirit delivers the mail into your heart. Which, can I tell you what's so cool about that? You're just the mailman. The Holy Spirit deposits this stuff in your friends' hearts. Right? When you feel the pressure, like, I don't know, if I share the word of God with somebody, they might reject. They might. They also might accept and receive. 
because we're not the Holy Spirit. We don't know when that action is going to go down. We don't know what's going to happen. All we're called to do is be mailmen. That's it. That's all you have to do. And sometimes the people you think are the hardest are the ones the Holy Spirit's doing something in. He's going to blow your mind if you're faithful. It's going to blow your mind if you just step out and say, why? Hebrews 4, starting in verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked exposed in the eyes of him whom, must, whom we must give an account. The word can just pierce more deeply. So don't be afraid to share it. Don't be afraid to show it. Because as a church, I'll tell you what, and this should be our attitude, even as people, when it comes to sharing the gospel, sharing God's word, um, we should not be looking and saying, well, the way we're going to grow a big church is through preaching and us sharing. It, it, it's, it's, it's more important than that. It's really not through uh, those activities, but it's through faithfulness to those activities. If I just simplified it and said, man, just we're going to be a church that's built on the back of preaching and we're going to grow to thousands through preaching. You know what I need to first start doing? Change my preaching style. If, if my mission is to grow numbers, I should change my preaching style. I should preach for 30 minutes and all God's people would say amen. Um, I should... I, I, I should just talk about simple topics all the time. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about parenting. We're going to talk about communication. I'm going to have like five funny jokes, two anecdotal stories. I'm going to make you cry once and we're going to pray. Right? And I, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to do that week after week after week after week after week. And you know what? Man, I know we could have a lot of people because it's going to scratch exactly where they itch. Um, and I have taught maybe 0.01% of the Bible by doing that. Take marriage or take parenting. You know how many pages the Bible has on marriage and parenting? If you put it all together, like one. Like one. A lot more on polygamy, weirdly enough, than there is on actually just marriage. Right? In other words, the whole counsel of God has a lot of stuff in it. It has a lot of stuff. And we want to teach the whole counsel of God. Paul tells Timothy, be prepared, know it, believe it, share it, whether time is favorable or not. That means when it's convenient or it's inconvenient, it's liked or it's hated, it's believed or rejected. Because you know what, it's not always going to be convenient, but God is always faithful. Right? It doesn't go out void, it has power, it does things that we don't understand. Because it pries into the human heart in ways that we cannot. Our job is not to discern what is the condition of the soil. Our job is to just sow the seed. That's it. We're not supposed to look at the parable of the seed in the sower and go, Ooh, that looks rocky. Oh, that looks weedy. Oh, that looks hard. We just, we just, we just share. We just proclaim. Sometimes it's not well received. Other times it is. It's what we do. Not only that, it says, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. Man, I love that. Correct. Show people from the Bible what is right and what is wrong. Right? That's correct. Rebuke. Say, stop and start. And then encourage, which is, man, and you have the grace of God to do what you need to do. All of those should be true. I don't know about you. I, I do. I meet some people sometimes who are like, you know what? We just need more inspirational messages from the Bible. I'm like, have you read it? I, 
I don't know if you really read it. I mean, like, I go to do a quiet time. I put in a mouthpiece and put on a cup because it beats you up. It is a tough book sometimes. But then in that, there's encouragement. Right? So you read it and go, man, this is my stuff. This is what I'm struggling with. This is my problem. Boy, the encouragement is God loves me regardless. Even when I'm making a bunch of noise. God loves me regardless. God's graced me for this. God gives me what I need to live in him. See, that's what it means to correct, rebuke, and encourage. All this truth. The Bible is like a boot camp. It tears you down to build you up. But it builds you up. It builds you up. Every time I go to it, I'm like, yep, that's me, yep, that's me. I repent, and then, man, I'm, I'm feeling good to move. Good to move. I'm feeling light to move. Now, why do we have to do this? Verse 3. It says, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the, tr the truth and chase after myths. We love to stock up teachers that tell us what we want to hear. And by the way, it isn't always sinful things. Sometimes we like to hear legalistic things that aren't in line with the truth. Sometimes we like to hear political things that aren't in line with the truth. Sometimes we like to hear cultural things that aren't in line with the truth. Sometimes we like to hear sinful things that aren't in line with the truth. But we stock up our teachers that tell us what we love to hear. And if we listen to teachers and all we ever say is amen and we never say ouch, we might want to evaluate there should be amens and there should be ouches. Both should be true. Both should be true. And he tells Timothy, but you, you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. I love this. Four simple things. Keep your head, take the hits, speak the truth, fulfill your purpose. There's your, there's, your, there's your marching orders right there. I love that. When you have a bad day, what should you do? Keep your head, take the hits, speak the truth, fulfill your purpose. Well, if you have a really great day, what should you do? Keep your head, take the hits, speak the truth, fulfill your purpose. What if you're praised? Keep your head, take the hits, speak the truth, fulfill your purpose. What if you're criticized? Take the hits. Keep your head, speak the truth, fulfill your purpose. Doesn't matter what it is. This is just our marching orders. That's how Paul lived. And so he says in verse 6, he says, as for me, my life has already been poured out. He's been doing this. He says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have to look at this and go, I wonder if this is how Paul really envisioned his life. I, I mean, think about this, right? So here's Paul. He's been faithful to Jesus his whole adult life. He served the Lord with tenacity and focus. And here at the end of his life, he's in jail on death row, probably not exactly fulfilling his life mission statement as far as from a human perspective. Here's his circumstance. First, he has nothing of material value to show for his efforts, not even a coat or a book to read. So in verse 13, he says, when you come to me, make sure to bring my coat. Also bring my books, especially the papers or parchments. He's got nothing. He's in jail, and he's got nothing. No cable TV, no weight room, nothing. He's got the clothes on his back, that's it, and he's on death row waiting his execution. Not only that, but his fellow pastor has ditched him. Verse 10 says, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life. 
So that's kind of a bummer. You're imprisoned, you're poor, and you're forsaken. Not only that, you're also opposed. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, but the Lord will judge him for what he has done. Be careful of him, for he fought against everything that we said. So he's imprisoned, he's poor, he's forsaken, he's opposed. Not only that, he's also abandoned. He says, the first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. May it not be counted against them. That is a huge statement right there. Right? So what do you get for faithfully following Jesus, faithfully preaching Jesus, faithfully loving the lost? What do you get for that? You're poor, opposed, imprisoned, abandoned, and forsaken. So what did he get in return for all of those sacrifices and loyalty? He says in verse 17, but the Lord stood with me. Can you say that? I mean, again, if this list was you, could you... Could you, could you really say that? Uh, I've got nothing. I have nothing to show for it. My friends have ditched me. Everybody stabbed me in the back. Nothing is there, but the Lord stood with me and gave me strength so that I could preach the good news in its entirety for the Gentiles to hear. He rescued me from certain death. Even as I face death, I praise him for what he has done, right? Yes, the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. A glory to God forever and ever. Amen. I love this so much that Paul's like, yeah, my circumstances aren't what I want. I am not being treated fair in any way. I've got enemies on every side, and my friends have totally shafted me. And what do I do? I thank God for him giving me strength. I thank God that he will deliver me. Paul's going to be delivered by his head being removed from his body, and he praises God for that. I'll be delivered. I'll be delivered. So he can say with joy, conviction, and anticipation, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. See, that is what we should shoot for and long for. Right now, I'm going to bring the worship team out. And as they're coming out, I, I, I want to give two challenges. Hopefully, I don't crackle through the challenges. The first is to the Christians in this room. All of us. Man, I, I put myself at the, 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 the top of the list of needing the challenge. Um, let's not waste our lives. Right? I mean, just being honest, let's not waste our lives. Right? We, we only have so many hours in the day and so many waking hours in that and everything else. And we can do a lot of things with that time. Um, but, but let's look at Paul's example and say, you know what? I want to fight. I want to finish. I want to keep. I want to use my time wisely. I don't want to waste my life. I want it to be that someday when it's my last breath, I reflect on my life and I go, well lived. It's amazing how many people kind of get on their deathbed and start trying to like, reconcile things and they look at what they squandered their time on and everything else. Um, we, we, could, we can fix that. We can start today to fix that by saying, I'm going to fight, I'm going to finish, I'm going to keep, that's what I'm going to do. And so for those in the room who are Christians, I challenge you, challenge me to fight that good fight of faith, to finish the race, to remain faithful. And for those in this room that may not know Jesus, 
I, I want to give a loving challenge to you. I mean, you, you've really heard what the Christian life is. It's, it's, obviously, it is no uh, slumber party, right? It's not. But it is the greatest journey one can ever engage in. It is the greatest journey. It is a journey that begins by the acknowledgement that I am estranged from God, that my sins have separated me from God, that my deepest need is not financial, it's not physical, it's not emotional, it's spiritual. My deepest need is a heart need, my deepest need is a soul need, my deepest need is an eternal need, and Jesus meets the need. Jesus said, I took a cross to meet the need. I suffered for your sin to meet the need. I rose from the dead to provide you with the need that you have. And if you repent and turn to me, I will fulfill that complete need. To change your life, to make you new. I want everybody to bow their heads right now. And Gary, if you could just start playing a little bit right there. I just want to make the prayerful challenge. For those of us that know Jesus, if we know that, you know what? I'm squandering the clock. To reevaluate that. To say, how can I use the time different? How can I use the clock different? For his name, for his saint, for his fame, for his name, for his glory, and in that for your good. You will be more blessed the harder you live for Jesus. You'll be more blessed, I guarantee it. Nothing is more joyful and liberating than a full court press, sold out love of Jesus. Nothing is. And so maybe right now it's a moment where you go, I just need to repent, I need to get right, I need to ditch some baggage, I need to take up some new activity, whatever it is. But you just pray, Jesus, use me for that. And for those of you who may be here and you're just checking out Christianity, checking out church, and you just drink from the fire hose of a chapter and a half, and you're like, it's spinning in my head, there may be one thing that you know, and you just know that I need to pray, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, rescue me. Jesus, take me. You can simply say, Jesus, I repent of my sin. Forgive me for my sin. I need you and want you to take control of my life. I want to live by your book, for your name, pursuing your life and entering your heaven. You just make that your prayer. And Jesus says, man, you're, you're mine. I take you. You're mine. You're forgiven completely. You're mine. No more shame, no more guilt, no more offense. You're pure and clean in me. Jesus we love you, we need you, and thank you. We praise you for all of your goodness and grace. I pray for all of us that have prayed either one of those prayers that we will sense your power. Christianity is, again, not a faith by which we have works apart from your power. It's works through your power because you work in us to bring them. I pray that we are faithful to you. I pray that you work in us. We love you and thank you in your awesome name. Amen.